Section 6 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 13, Great Writers by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Sir Walter Scott, Part 4. With the publication of Old Mortality in 1816, then, Scott introduced the first of his historical novels, which had great fascination for students. Who ever painted the old Cameronian with more felicity? Whoever described the peculiarities of the Scottish Calvinists during the reign of the last of the Stuarts with more truthfulness? Their severity, their strict and Judaical observance of the Sabbath, their hostility to popular amusements, their rigid and legal morality, their love of theological dogmas, their inflexible prejudices, their lofty aspirations. Where shall we find in literature a sterner fanatical Puritan than John Balfour of Burley, or a fiercer royalist than Graham of Claverhouse? As a love story, this novel is not remarkable. It is not in the description of passionate love that Scott anywhere excels. His heroines, with two or three exceptions, would be called rather tame by the modern reader, although they win respect for their domestic virtues and sterling elements of character. His favorite heroes are either Englishmen of good family or Scotchmen educated in England, gallant, cultivated, and reproachless, but without any striking originality or intellectual force. Rob Roy was published in the latter part of 1817, and was received by the public with the same unabated enthusiasm which marked the appearance of Guy Mannering and the other romances. An edition of 10,000 was disposed of in two weeks, and the subsequent sale amounted to 40,000 more. The scene of this story is laid in the highlands of Scotland with an English hero and a Scottish heroine, and in this fascinating work the political history of the times, 40 years earlier than the period of Waverley, is portrayed with great impartiality. It is a description of the first Jacobite rising against George I in the year 1715. In this novel, one of the greatest of Scott's creations appears in the heroine, Diana Vernon, rather wild and masculine, but interesting from her courage and virtue. The character of Bailey Jarvie is equally original and more amusing. The general effect of Rob Roy, as well as of Waverley and Old Mortality, was to make the Scottish Highlanders and Jacobites interesting to English readers of opposite views and feelings, without arousing hostility to the reigning royal family. The Highlanders a hundred years ago were viewed by the English with sentiments nearly similar to those with which the Puritan settlers of New England looked upon the Indians, at any rate as freebooters, robbers, and murderers, who were dangerous to civilization, and the severities of the English government towards these lawless clans, both as outlaws and as foes of the Hanoverian succession, were generally condoned by public opinion. Scott succeeded in producing a better feeling among both the conquerors and the conquered. He modified general sentiment by his impartial and liberal views and allayed prejudices. The Highlanders thenceforth were regarded as a body of men with many interesting traits and capable of becoming good subjects of the crown, while their own hatred and contempt of the lowland Saxon were softened by the many generous and romantic incidents of these tales. Two hitherto hostile races were drawn into neighborly sympathy. Travelers visited the beautiful Highland retreats and returned with enthusiastic impressions of the country. To no other man does Scotland owe so great a debt of gratitude as to Walter Scott, not only for his poetry and novels, but for showing the admirable traits of a barren country and a fierce population, and contributing to bring them within the realm of civilization. A century or two ago, the Highlands of Scotland were peopled by a race in a state of perpetual conflict with civilization, adverse to labor, gaining except such of them as were enrolled in the English army, a precarious support by plunder, blackmailing, smuggling, and other illegal pursuits. Now they compose a body of hard-working, intelligent, and law-abiding laborers 
cultivating farms, raising cattle and sheep, and pursuing the various branches of industry which lead to independence, if not to wealth. The traveler among the highlands feels as secure and is made as comfortable as in any part of the island, while revelations of their shrewd intelligence and unsuspected wit in the stories of Barry and Crockett show what a century of Calvinistic theology, as the chief mental stimulant, has done, has done in developing blossoms from that thistle-like stock. Scott had now all the fame and worldly prosperity which any literary man could attain to, for his authorship of the novels, although unacknowledged, was more and more generally believed, and after 1821 not denied. He lived above the atmosphere of envy, honored by all classes of people, surrounded with admiring friends and visitors. He had an income of at least £10,000 a year. Wherever he journeyed, he was treated with the greatest distinction. In London, he was cordially received as a distinguished guest in any circle he chose. The highest nobles paid homage to him. The king made him a baronet, the first purely literary man in England to receive that honor. He now became ambitious to increase his lands, and the hundred acres of farm at Abbotsford were enlarged by new purchases, picturesquely planted with trees and shrubberies, while the cottage grew to a mansion and the mansion to a castle, with its twelve hundred surrounding acres cultivated and made beautiful. Scott's correspondence with famous people was immense, besides his other labors as a farmer, lawyer, and author. Few persons of rank or fame visited Edinburgh without paying their respects to its most eminent citizen. His country house was invaded by tourists. He was on terms of intimacy with some of the proudest nobles of Scotland. His various works were the daily food, not only of his countrymen, but of all educated Europe. Station, power, wealth, beauty, and genius strove with each other in every demonstration of respect and worship. And yet, in the midst of this homage and increasing prosperity, one of the most fortunate of human beings, Scott's head was not turned. His habitual modesty preserved his moral health amid all sorts of temptation. He never lost his intellectual balance. He assumed no airs of superiority. His manners were simple and unpretending to the last. He praised all literary productions except his own. His life in Edinburgh was plain, though hospitable and free, and he seemed to care for few luxuries aside from books, of which life made a large collection. The furniture of his houses in Edinburgh and at Abbotsford was neither showy nor luxurious. He was extraordinarily fond of dogs and all domestic animals, who, sympathetic creatures as they are, unerringly sought him out and lavished affection upon him. When Scott lived in Castle Street, he was not regarded by Edinburgh society as particularly brilliant in conversation, since he never aspired to lead by learned disquisitions. He told stories well, with great humor and pleasantry, to amuse rather than to instruct. His talk was almost homely. The most notable thing about it was common sense. Lord Cockburn said of him that his sense was more wonderful than his genius. He did not blaze like Macaulay or Mackintosh at the dinner table, nor absorb conversation like Coleridge and Sidney Smith. He disliked, says Lockhart, mere disquisitions in Edinburgh and prepared impromptus in London. A doctrinaire in society was to him an abomination. Hence, until his fame was established by the admiration of the world, Edinburgh professors did not see his greatness. To them he seemed commonplace, but not to such men as Hallam or Moore or Rogers or Crocker or Canning. Notwithstanding, Scott gave great dinners occasionally, and they appear to have been a bore to him, as he very rarely went out to evening entertainments, although at public dinners his wit and sense made him a favorite chairman. He retired early at night and rose early in the morning, and his severest labors were before breakfast, his principal meal. He always dined at home on Sunday with a few intimate friends, and his dinner was substantial and plain. He drank very little wine, 
and preferred a glass of whiskey toddy to champagne or port. He could not distinguish between Madeira and Sherry. He was neither an epicure nor a gourmand. After Scott had become world famous, his happiest hours were spent in enlarging and adorning his land at Abbotsford, and in erecting and embellishing his baronial castle. In this, his gains were more than absorbed. He loved that castle more than any of his intellectual creations, and it was not completed until nearly all his novels were written. Without personal extravagance, he was lavish in the sums he spent on Abbotsford. Here he delighted to entertain his distinguished visitors, of whom no one was more welcome than Washington Irving, whom he liked for his modesty and quiet humor and unpretending manners. Lockhart writes, It would hardly, I believe, be too much to affirm that Sir Walter Scott entertained under his roof, in the course of the seven or eight brilliant seasons when his prosperity was at its height, as many persons of distinction in rank, in politics, in art, in literature, and in science, as the most princely nobleman of his age ever did in the like space of time. One more unconscious, apparently, of his great powers has been rarely seen among literary men, especially in England and France, affording a striking contrast in this respect to Dryden, Pope, Voltaire, Byron, Bulwer, Macaulay, Carlyle, Hugo, Dumas, and even Tennyson. Great lawyers and great statesmen are rarely so egotistical and conceited as poets, novelists, artists, and preachers. Scott made no pretensions which were offensive or which could be controverted. His greatest aspiration seems to have been to be a respectable landed proprietor and to found a family. An English country gentleman was his beau ideal of happiness and contentment. Perhaps this was a weakness, but it was certainly a harmless and amiable one, not so offensive as intellectual pride. Scott, indeed, while without vanity, had pride, but it was of a lofty kind, disdaining meanness and cowardice as worse even than transgressions which have their origin in unregulated passions. From the numerous expletives which abound in Scott's letters, such as are not now considered in good taste among gentlemen, I infer that, like most gentlemen of his social standing, in those times he was in the habit of using, when highly excited or irritated, what is called profane language. After he had once given vent to his feelings, however, he was amiable and forgiving enough for a Christian sage, who never harbored malice or revenge. He had great respect for the military profession, probably because it was the great prop and defense of government and established institutions, for he was the most conservative of aristocrats. And yet his aristocratic turn of mind never conflicted with his humane disposition, never made him a snob. He abhorred all vulgarity. He admired genius and virtue in whatever garb they appealed. He was as kind to his servants and to poor and unfortunate people as he was to his equals in society, being eminently big-hearted. It was only fools who made great pretensions that he despised and treated with contempt. No doubt, Scott was bored by the numerous visitors, whether invited or uninvited, who came from all parts of Great Britain, from America, and even from continental Europe, to do homage to his genius or to gratify their curiosity. Sometimes as many as thirty guests sat down to his banqueting table at once. He entertained in baronial style, but without ostentation or prodigality, and on old-fashioned dishes. He did not like French cooking, and his simple taste in the matters of beverage we have already noted. The people to whom he was most attentive were the representatives of ancient families, whether rich or poor. Scott was very kind to literary men in misfortune, and his chosen friends were authors of eminence, like Miss Edgeworth, Joanna Bailey, Thomas Moore, Crabbe, Southey, Wordsworth, Sir Humphrey Davy, Dr. Wollaston the chemist, Henry Mackenzie, etc., he was very intimate with the Duke of Buckley, 
Lord Montague, and other noblemen. He was visited by dukes and princes, as well as by ladies of rank and fame. George the Fourth sent him valuable presents and showed him every mark of high consideration. Cambridge and Oxford tendered to him honorary degrees. Wherever he traveled, he was received with honor and distinction and flatteries. But he did not like flatteries, and this was one reason why he did not openly acknowledge his authorship of his novels, until all doubt was removed by the masterly papers of John Leicester Adolphus in 1821. Scott's correspondence must have been enormous, for his postage bills amounted to 150 pounds per annum, besides the aid he received from Franks, which, with his natural economy, he made no scruple in liberally using. Perhaps his most confidential letters were, like Byron's, written to his publishers and printers, though many such were addressed to his son-in-law Lockhart and to his dearest friend William Erskine. But he had also some admirable women friends with whom he corresponded freely. Some of the choicest of his recently published letters are to Lady Abercorn, who was an intimate and helpful friend, to Miss Anna Seward, a literary confidant of many years, to Lady Louisa Stuart, daughter of the Earl of Butte, and granddaughter of Mary Wortley Montague, one of the few who knew from the first of his Waverley authorship, and to Mrs. John Hughes, an early and most affectionate friend whose grandson, Thomas Hughes, has made famous the commonplace name of Tom Brown in our own day. Scott's letters show the man, frank, cordial, manly, tender, generous, finding humor in difficulties, pleasure in toil, satisfaction in success a proud courage in adversity, and the purest happiness in the affection of his friends. How Scott found time for so much work is a mystery, writing nearly three novels a year, besides other literary labors, attending to his duties in the courts, overlooking the building of Abbotsford and the cultivation of his 1,200 acres, and entertaining more guests than Voltaire did at Fernay. He was too much absorbed by his legal duties and his literary labors to be much of a traveler, yet he was a frequent visitor to London, saw something of Paris, journeyed through Ireland, was familiar with the Lake region in England, and penetrated to every interesting place in Scotland. He did not like London and took little pleasure in the ovations he received from people of rank and fashion. As a literary lion at the tables of the great, he disappointed many of his admirers since he made no effort to shine. It was only in his modest den in Castle Street, or in rambles in the country, or at Abbotsford, that he felt himself at home and appeared to the most advantage. It would be pleasant to leave this generally great man in the full flush of health, creative power, inward delight, and outward prosperity, but that were to leave unwritten the finest and noblest part of his life. It is to the misfortunes which came upon him that we owe both a large part of his splendid achievements in literature and our knowledge of the most admirable characteristics of the man. My running records of his novels last mentioned The Monastery, issued in 1820, in the same year with perhaps the prime favorites of all his works, Ivanhoe, the romantic tale of England in the crusading age of Richard the Lionhearted. In 1821, he put forth the fascinating Elizabethan tale of Kenilworth. In 1822 came The Pirate, the tale of sea and shore that inspired James Fenimore Cooper to write The Pilot and his other sea stories, and The Fortunes of Nigel. In 1823, Peveril of the Peak and Quentin Durward, both among his best. In 1824, St. Ronan's Well and Red Gauntlet. And in 1825, two more tales of the Crusaders, The Betrothed and The Talisman, the latter probably sharing with Ivanhoe the greatest popularity. In the winter of 1825 to 1826, a widespread area of commercial distress resulted in the downfall of many firms and among others to succumb were Hearst and Robinson, publishers, 
whose failure precipitated that of Constable and Company, Scott's publishers, and of the Ballantines, his printers, with whom he was a secret partner, who were largely indebted to the constables and so to the creditors of that house. The crash came January 16, 1826, and Scott found himself in debt to the amount of £147,000, or nearly $735. Such a vast misfortune, overwhelming a man at the age of 55, might well crush out all life and hope and send him into hopeless bankruptcy, with a poor consolation that, though legally responsible, he was not morally bound to pay other people's debts. But Scott's own sanguine carelessness had been partly to blame for the Ballantine failure, and he faced the billow as it suddenly appeared, bowed to it in grief but not in shame, and while not pretending to any stoicism, instantly resolved to devote the remainder of his life to the repayment of the creditors. The solid substance of manliness, honor, and cheerful courage in his character, the genuine piety with which he accepted the dispensation, and wrote, Blessed be the name of the Lord, the unexampled steadiness, with which he comforted his wife and daughters, while girding himself to the daily work of intellectual production amidst his many distresses, the sweetness of heart with which he acknowledged the sympathy and declined the offers of help that poured in upon him from every side, one poor music teacher offering his little savings of six hundred pounds, and an anonymous admirer urging upon him a loan of thirty thousand pounds, all this is the beauty that lighted up the black cloud of Scott's adversary. His efforts were finally successful, although at the cost of his bodily existence. Lockhart says, He paid the penalty of health and life, but he saved his honor and his self-respect. The glory dies not, and the grief is past. Woodstock, then about half done, was completed in 69 days and issued in March 1826, bringing in about $41,000 to his creditors. His Life of Napoleon, published in June 1827, produced $90,000. In 1827 also, Scott issued Chronicles of the Canongate, first series, several minor stories, and the first series of Tales of a Grandfather in 1828, The Fair Maid of Perth, second series of the Chronicles, and more Tales of a Grandfather. In 1829, Anne of Geierstein, more Tales of a Grandfather, the first volume of A History of Scotland, and a collective edition of the Waverley novels in 48 volumes with new introductions, notes, and careful corrections and improvements of the text throughout. In itself, an immense labor. In 1830, more Tales of a Grandfather, a three-volume history of France, and volume two of the history of Scotland. In 1831, and finally, a fourth series of Tales of My Landlord, including Count Robert of Paris and Castle Dangerous. This completes the list of Scott's greater productions, but it should be remembered that during all the years of his creative work, he was incessantly doing critical and historical writing, producing numerous reviews, essays, ballads, introductions to diverse works, biographical sketches for Ballantine's Novelist's Library, the works of 15 celebrated English writers of fiction, Fielding, Smollett, etc., letters and pamphlets, dramas, even a few religious discourses, and his very extensive and interesting private correspondence. He was such a marvel of productive brain power as has seldom, if ever, been known to humanity. The illness and death of Scott's beloved wife, but four short months after his commercial disaster, was a profound grief to him, and under the exhausting pressure of incessant work during the five years following, his bodily power began to fail, so that in October 1831, after a paralytic shock, he stopped all literary labor and went to Italy for recuperation. The following June, he returned to London, weaker in both mind and body, was taken to Abbotsford in July, and on the 21st, September, 1832, with his children about him, 
the kindly, manly, brave, and tender spirit passed away. At the time of his death, Sir Walter had reduced his great indebtedness to $270,000, a life insurance of $110,000, $10,000 in the hands of his trustees, and $150,000 advanced by Robert Cadell, an Edinburgh bookseller, on the copyrights of Scott's works, cleared away the last remnant of the death, and within twenty years Cadell had reimbursed himself and made a handsome profit for his own accounts and that of the family of Sir Walter. The moneyed details of Scott's literary life have been made a part of this brief sketch, both because his phenomenal fecundity and popularity offer a convenient measure of his power, and because the fiscal misfortune of his later life revealed a simple grandeur of character even more admirable than his mental force. Scott ruined, exclaimed the Earl of Dudley when he heard of the trouble. The author of Waverley ruined. Good God, let every man to whom he has given months of delight give him a sixpence, and he will rise tomorrow morning richer than Rothschild. But the sturdy Scotchman accepted no dole. He set himself to work out his own salvation. William Howitt, in his Homes and Haunts of Eminent British Poets, estimated that Scott's works had produced as profits to the author or his trustees at least £500,000, nearly $2,500,000. This in 1847, over 50 years ago, and only 45 years from Scott's first original publication. Add the results of the past 50 years, and, remembering that this gives but the profits, conceive the immense sums that have been freely paid by the intelligent British public for their enjoyment of this great author's writings. Then, besides all this, recall the myriad volumes of Scott sold in America, which paid no profit to the author or his heirs. There is no parallel. Voltaire's renown and monetary rewards as the master writer of the 18th century offered the only case in modern times that approaches Scott's success. Yet Voltaire's vast wealth was largely the result of successful speculation. As a purely popular author whose wholesome fancy, great heart, and tireless industry has delighted millions of his fellow men, Scott stands alone, while as a man he holds the affection and respect of the world. Even though it be that the fashion of his workmanship passeth away, wonder not, lament not. With Mithridates he could say, I have lived. What great man can say more? End of section 6.